the From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Happy Friday, friends. My name is Joseph Backholm. It's my pleasure to be sitting in for Tony today here on Washington Watch. I'm a senior fellow for World, uh, Biblical Worldview and Strategic Engagement. I forgot my title there for a moment. Excuse me. But that is who I am, and I think I am here hosting, filling in for Tony here on Washington Watch. It's a pleasure to be with you. A couple reminders as we start the program today. The website is FRC, is TonyPerkins.com, where you can catch every episode of Washington Watch. Again, that's TonyPerkins.com. In addition, if you want to get text updates from FRC, text the word STAND to 67742, the word stand, to 67742, to have all the information you need sent directly to your phone. Great program today because it's been a very interesting week in the nation's capital. What we're going to talk about today, so much attention being focused on Ukraine, but serious human rights abuses are escalating right now in Nigeria. What's happening and why do most people not even know that it's happening? We're going to discuss that today. In addition, how have congressional Democrats made legislation to stop imports of Russian energy a threat to religious freedom? We'll talk about a sneaky and dangerous proposal currently in the United States Senate. In addition... Why can't Judge Jackson define what a woman is? You've probably seen the clip by now. And more fundamentally, why do people try to complicate simple things? That's what we're going to talk about in our worldview segment at the end of the program. So stay with us for that. But our headlines earlier today, Russian leader Vladimir Putin accused Western nations of trying to cancel the Russian culture through what he described as, quote, the progressing discrimination of everything connected with Russia, end quote. And those remarks came after Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov said earlier in the day that a total war had been declared on Russia with the goal of the West to, quote, destroy, break, annihilate, strangle the Russian economy and Russia as a whole, end quote. Is Russia really the victim here? Here to bring us the latest on Russia and Ukraine is FRC's Marjorie Jackson. Marjorie, good to see you. It's great to be here, Joseph. Well, tell us, you heard those comments uh, from Putin as well as Lavrov. Why is Russia claiming to be the victim here? Well, let's not forget Russia is not the victim. In fact, it was about a month ago that they decided to invade Ukraine. And in the words of Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, Russia has committed war crimes. Now, some of those war crimes include, of course, I'm sure you heard, Joseph, this past week there was a bombing at a Maripol theater that was housing men, women, and children who were taking shelter from the war. Uh, and that led to a 300-person death toll, which is absolutely tragic. In addition to that, uh, there have been reports uh, that Ukrainians are being kidnapped in the hundreds of thousands and taken to Moscow to be war hostages. So let's not forget who the real victims are, if you will. Uh, but it looks like Ukraine has been fighting back harder than anyone has expected. In fact, uh, the Russian Defense Ministry reported some numbers this past week, saying that about 1,300 Russian troops have been killed in battle. Now, according to a NATO um, a review this past week, it looks like they may be lowballing the numbers uh, on their end of things. It could be up to 15,000 Russian troop deaths. And for obvious reasons, Russia would be understating the harm that has actually incurred to their to their military. And I've heard upwards of 40,000 troops potentially lost through either abandonment, death, being captured or simply injured. So the toll has been significant. Somehow they're trying to downplay the toll with their own people, but also trying to play the victim nationally, internationally, I should say. However, uh, perhaps encouraging news, some reports that there may be progress toward a peace agreement. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, so right now, President Erdogan of Turkey is hosting these diplomatic discussions between President Zelensky and President Putin, and they are potentially coming to an agreement. 
So uh, between uh, the different points that are being discussed, it looks like they have maybe settled on some agreement on four of the six points that may be needed to begin wrapping up this war that has taken so many lives. Uh, they are beginning to agree on issues such as NATO, disarmament, collective security, and the Russian language. Some of the discussions that are still being had and have yet to come to a conclusion include Crimea and Donbas. Marjorie, tell us a bit more about those. What are the points where we don't, where they currently don't agree that could lead the war to, to continue when you say Crimea and Donbas? Yeah, so uh, according to President Erdogan, those discussions are still in order. Um, and it looks like Ukraine uh, is not yet ready to settle on the agreements that Russia is hoping to come to. However, uh, Erdogan is still very hopeful, saying that they could be talking about peace in the near future. In fact, Erdogan says that he plans to tell Putin uh, to, and I quote, make an honorable exit and become an architect of peace. End quote. Well, Erdogan has his own troubling history of human rights abuses in his past, but if he can be a broker of peace in this situation, we would all be grateful for it. Marjorie Jackson, thanks so much for your update today. Thanks, Joseph. In addition, earlier today, President Biden landed in Poland, where he met with members of the U.S. Army's 82nd Airborne Division, who are stationed there along the Poland-Ukrainian border. Here's what he had to say. We're in a new phase, your generation. We're in an inflection point. About every four or five generations that comes along and changes, fundamental change takes place. The world ain't going to be the same, not because of Ukraine, but I'm not going to be the same 10, 15 years from now in terms of our organizational structures. And the question is, who's going to prevail? Are democracies going to prevail and the, and the values we share? Or autocracy is going to prevail? And that's really what's at stake. Here with me now to talk about the president's trip to Europe, as well as some other things, is Travis Weber, Vice President for Policy and Government Affairs at FRC. Travis, good to see you today. Thank you. What's your reaction to uh, Biden's comments there? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's hard for anyone to watch that clip and not observe that he just looks really tired. You know, it's lacking energy, like he's almost going to fall asleep. And you observe that and you're focused on that, not on the substance of what he's saying. The impression is one that projects weakness, not strength. It projects uncertainty, not the projection the United States needs to be making right now as the leader of the free world trying to galvanize NATO and Europe. You know, if you're the Russians watching this, you're thinking this is just, you know, someone we're going to try to keep pulling a fast one on with our actions, activities in Ukraine and elsewhere, to say nothing of the way the Chinese leadership might be looking at this eyeing up Taiwan, assessing and, uh, and, and thinking about the dynamics around the possible attempt they might make to take Taiwan as they observe uh, Russia and Ukraine and President Biden's statements like what we just observed. So, you know, this is, I think it does not send a solid signal, does not send a good signal uh, for the world because it does not, um, it does not show U.S. strength and leadership uh, for freedom, democracy and the protection of human rights and um, and democratic ideals around the world. We know right now that China, you know, among other things, has been the Chinese government has been continuing to exercise control over over Hong Kong. Uh, last week, there was a report about the crackdown and effect on, on religious schools in Hong Kong, their autonomy in face of in the face of new uh, restrictions that have gone into place last year, made a lot of waves over the past year or two, but have not gotten a lot of attention since. So there are continue to be crackdowns and repression worldwide in secret uh, in escaping a lot of the focus of the news, to say nothing, obviously, of North Korea's uh, noise-making with its missile testing and other activities recently, no doubt trying to put its voice in the mix as um, Russia, China, and, and Iran and other countries test Biden's medal on the world stage. So you look at a statement like that, and it's, it's obviously problematic when we need to project U.S. strength right now worldwide. Yeah, to your point, there are many implications from this current conflict. Could be other autocrats, other tyrants looking to seize on their neighbors. And certainly the way the world is responding right now to this Russian invasion of Ukraine may influence how they respond. Now, uh, on Thursday night, uh, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky had some comments to the European Council where he thanked them for what they're doing, but said, quote, it was a little late do you think the world is learning any lessons, including the Biden administration, where we might be ahead of the game uh, in the future? 
Yeah, you know, Joseph, I don't know. I, I really, I hope so. I hope that we're learning lessons from what we're observing right now worldwide. I hope that the actions that we have taken and uh, parts of uh, countries in Europe have taken um, against Russia will have um, fruit, will bear fruit. And I hope that we learn from whatever, wherever we've fallen short on our response and it can adjust in the future. I just fear that uh, without a, a sufficiently firm and uh, a firm response that projects um, strength and does not waver worldwide, without that, uh, we are going to fall short when it comes to Russia, when it comes to Iran, elsewhere. I, I am heartened at the same time, though, heartened by the response of some European countries, Poland and other countries taking in their populations, really taking in the Ukrainian refugees who are fleeing, providing aid for them and helping alleviate the burden and suffering that we're seeing with millions displaced in that part of Europe right now. Watching the Biden administration respond to this, one does get the sense that there's a lot of uh, looking around the room and saying, well, what are you going to do? I don't know. What are you going to do? What are you going to do before a decision is made? And that's not what leadership looks like. But Travis, another subject I want to bring up with you now the, the nation has been watching this confirmation hearing process with Judge Jackson. Um, famous comments now, now infamous comments, I suppose, about what a woman is. Uh, Senator Joe Manchin has given the Democrats a lot of trouble uh, in the last year, but has indicated that he plans to vote to confirm Judge Jackson. Do you think his declaration all but assures Judge Jackson will become Justice Jackson? I think we're pretty close to that point. Um, you know, I think it, it, the vote will likely take place along party lines. It will be a pretty close vote. Leader McConnell did come out with a statement recently that he plans to vote against her and laying out his reasons why. So that should give encouragement to some Republicans who might be right on the fence. You know, with these nominations, it's always interesting. You have some Republicans who might vote a certain way on the underlying issues, but then when they look at the, the nomination a confirmation process, they kind of frame it and process it, the decision that they're making a, different, a bit differently and say, you know, we're going to um, uh, kind of defer to the, um, the, the president's nominee. The problem with that is when the president's nominee has a, a, a bad um, process and bad uh, judicial philosophy or, you know, philosophy of government if it's a, a non-judicial nominee. In this instance, you have Judge Jackson definitely trying to frame herself as an originalist or and assure Republicans and conservatives that she has a legitimate process for interpreting the Constitution. She, she certainly has a process for doing so, but I don't think it's anything close to originalism. And I think, you know, her, her, um, her, her, what she's try, put forth publicly is an assurance that she will fall into a reliably liberal voting block, voting wing of the court that is carrying on decades and decades of judicial activism, reading policy into the Constitution instead of determining what the law is. This is unacceptable. Uh, she should be opposed. We'll have to see what happens. But I do think uh, we're likely looking at her being confirmed in the near future. Travis, in about 30 seconds, should the ability to distinguish between boys and girls be a minimum qualification to be on the Supreme Court? It should be a minimum qualification for all public office, uh, but uh, public offices. But, you know, this is where we're at uh, today in society. And it says where we're at by the fact that that is a legitimate point of discussion right now. Travis Weber, thank you so much for your time being with us. Interesting conversation. And we're going to get in uh, more later in the program around the, the Justice Jackson questioning and confirmation process. But Travis, we appreciate your time for now. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Stay with us. When we come back, we are going to have more Washington Watch right around the corner. Are you struggling to spend consistent time in God's Word? Then join Family Research Council on an exciting journey through the Bible. FRC's two-year Bible reading plan helps you to approach daily Bible reading with an intentional focus of diving deeper into the nature of God and how His Word speaks into cultural issues. By studying the Bible, we can see the grandeur of God unfold throughout the past. The Stand on the Word reading plan takes you through daily scripture in an engaging manner to help you stay grounded in God's truth. All wisdom comes from God, and He has given us the Bible as a way to understand the world. 
Start this adventure today with Family Research Council. When you sign up, we'll text you every Sunday with daily passages and questions that help prepare you for conversations with your friends and family. To begin this journey, visit frc.org Bible. With the current division and confusion of our culture, it is so important for Christians to root ourselves in the truth of God's Word so that we are prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have. For this purpose, Family Research Council launched the Center for Biblical Worldview. The Center applies the Bible and the historical teachings of the Church to current issues. This helps Christians understand and live by a biblical worldview, know why Scripture must be authoritative, and equips believers to advance and defend the faith in workplaces, schools, communities, and the public square. The experts at the Center address and provide resources on issues like religious liberty, abortion, voting, marriage, and sexuality. To access free resources like the Biblical Worldview series, go to frc.org worldview. To get highlights of the latest work of the Worldview Fellows, including blogs, interviews, and publications, sign up at frc.org subscriptions. At Family Research Council, it is important to us that we stay connected with you and that you stay informed. With the increase in tech censorship of conservatives and Christians, we've decided to be proactive to make sure we don't go completely dark due to censorship. That is why we've created a tech subscription platform. If we get canceled, you can stay informed and still find updates on faith, family, and freedom. How? Just text STAND to 67742 to sign up for our text alerts, and you will get FRC's content straight to your phone. Again, just text STAND to 67742, and you will get special alerts on the biggest stories of the day. You can stay informed with just a simple text. We want you to be able to stay connected with like-minded community and to always have access to our content. Stay connected and informed. Just text STAND to 67742. Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony today. So glad that you are with us today. As the war continues in Ukraine, Congress has rushed to respond with legislation enacting sanctions against Russia. And there is a bipartisan support for this effort. However, some in Congress are trying to use this moment of bipartisan agreement to amend something called the Magnitsky Act in a way that could seriously threaten religious freedom. And here to explain what's happening is Ariel Del Turco, Assistant Director of the Center for Religious Liberty here at FRC. Ariel, welcome back to Washington Watch. Good to be with you. So I laid a little bit of the foundation there. Generally speaking, there's good legislation. Nobody wants to be sending more money to Russia than we need to be right now. This legislation would stop that from happening. But there are some gains being played by some congressional Democrats who want to amend something called the Magnitsky Act. Can you tell us first, what is the Magnitsky Act? Yeah, so the Global Magnitsky Act was... Uh, passed in 2016, and its intention was to enable the U.S. government to target foreign individuals responsible of human rights violations for targeted financial sanctions. So it's a way of promoting human rights while not punishing maybe an entire government or an entire country. So it's a very powerful tool. But now what we're seeing with this new amendment is that they're trying to change the definition of the types of human rights violations that the U.S. can sanction an individual for, from gross violations of internationally recognized human rights to just serious human rights abuse. Now, the first term, the gross violations of international human rights, it has a legal definition in uh, U.S. law. So we know what that means. It's a very high standard. But for serious human rights abuse, that has no legal definition. So essentially, that gives the federal government a lot of power and a lot of discretion to basically read anything they might consider a human rights violation to be a human rights violation and to be sanctionable, even if that's not been what we've generally understood to be human rights violations. So we're seeing a lot of ways and a lot of concerns of how this could be abused. Now, within the law, the, the uh, devil is always in the details. And when you start to change the definitions and change the standards of when something can be used, it's important to understand 
why are we trying to change that definition? Have those who are sponsoring these amendments, proposing these amendments, explained why they want to lower the standard uh, that would qualify someone for sanctions by the federal government? Well, what they're saying is that an expansion in the definition will allow the U.S. to go after more human rights violators who deserve to be gone after. But really, when we read into the detail of the law, we see that the law does allow for serious human rights violators to be um, sufficiently sanctioned. And this expansion and this giving all this power to the federal government is really unnecessary. So specifically, some concerns that we have are that the president will get this power and then use it to sanction foreign individuals for, or even threaten to sanction foreign individuals for uh, maybe having socially conservative policies. Um, if we're hearing that abortion is the right, the supposed right to abortion is now a human right, that, uh, that opens the doorway for the U.S. government to promote a radical agenda abroad in a way that's really damaging to our foreign policy and our relations with other countries, and that's damaging for just the world. And let's talk about how this might apply, because, again, the current standard is a gross violation of internationally recognized human rights. And so taking the Russia example right now, there is an unprovoked attack, missiles being launched into neighborhoods, into children's hospitals. We know of warlords who have committed what is effectively genocide. And in some cases, we talked about uh, earlier this week in Burma, it is an actual genocide. So we would all agree that if there are people committing genocide in a part of the world doing those things, then it would be great if the, if the United States can use whatever influence it has to sanction those people to punish them for those violations. But the concern is if we lower the standard, uh, given how the left thinks about violence, about human rights violations uh, more recently, that something as benign as saying something that they find offensive, they could find to be a serious human right violation under the current standard. And let's, a specific example of this, a Finnish parliament member, uh, name it, I think I'm going to pronounce this, I'm, I'm actually probably going to mispronounce this, Paivi Rasinen, who is currently in trial in Finland for tweeting a Bible verse about homosexuality that, of course, is politically incorrect. They found it to be hate speech. Is that the kind of behavior or activity that potentially the federal government could use this new definition to punish people for? Well, in a worst case scenario, that's exactly what we're afraid of. So Pivey is someone, she's a longtime member of the Finnish parliament, a well-known Christian, but um, she's not a rebel rouser. She's not a firebrand. Uh, she is a met former medical doctor and a grandmother. All she did was uh, post a tweet questioning whether her own denomination should be supporting the Helsinki Pride Parade. And um, with along with it, there was a photo of scripture from Romans. And that instigated a, a police investigation. And they went through 20 years worth of her public statements and found three statements that um, questioned uh, homosexual conduct from a biblical worldview. And now she's being charged for a hate speech violation. And the maximum uh, time that she could get is two years in jail for this. Now, the prosecution is now just asking for a fine. But still, that's that's very serious. So when we're looking at cases around the world like this, the United States government has to make a choice. We've promoted religious freedom abroad for decades. But now are we going to promote religious freedom or are we going to promote um, abusive and uh, radical social agendas? And I think that um, the Global Magnitsky Act, it's a great, it's a great human rights tool. I work on international religious freedom every day. I find this to be very valuable to uh, punish severe human rights violators, but we need to keep this on the straight and narrow path and make sure that the integrity of the State Department's human rights advocacy is upheld. Ariel, that's a great point. We've got about 30 seconds left. What's the status of this? What can people do if they want to make sure that this definition in the Magnitsky Act is not changed so that it could be abused by the federal government? Uh, well, people can let their representatives know that uh, we like the Global Magnitsky Act, but we want to keep its integrity and we don't want to be changing definitions needlessly. We agree with that and we encourage people to do so. Ariel Del Turco, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. 
stay with us. Coming up, while the invasion of Ukraine dominates the news, there is a slaughter taking place that is going mostly unnoticed. It's in Nigeria. We're going to talk about it when we come back. Don't go away. What is religious liberty and why should you care about it? Simply put, religious liberty is the freedom to choose your religious beliefs and to live according to those beliefs. Why should we care about this freedom? At Family Research Council, we care about religious freedom because we believe that it is an inherent human right that all governments have an obligation to protect. Tragically, not all governments do. Religious persecution is a tragic reality around the world that is not often acknowledged by the media even though attacks on people of all faiths continue to increase globally. In scripture, God calls Christians to pray and care for the persecuted church, the downtrodden, and those who cannot help themselves. Therefore, we must be advocates for those persecuted for their faith. To access Family Research Council's latest resources and to learn more about religious freedom and what you can do to help the persecuted, go to frc.org slash religious liberty. Do you want to be able to stay up to date on conservative news? Are you looking for Christian resources to help you stay politically engaged? Then download Family Research Council's Stand Firm app. With all of our content available at your fingertips, you will conveniently be able to stay up to date throughout your busy day. The Stand Firm app will give you access to a variety of resources, such as our most recent episodes of Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, tweets, and other social media posts, and our latest blogs, updates, and publications. Additionally, you will have the opportunity to take action and make your voice heard by contacting your elected officials on the issues that most concern you. Visit the App Store on your smartphone or mobile device and search Stand Firm to download Family Research Council's official Stand Firm app. Welcome back to Washington Watch, friends. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony. So glad that you are with us this Friday. I want to remind you the website is TonyPerkins.com, where you can find this and every episode of Washington Watch. For the past month, Russia's murderous invasion of Ukraine has transfixed the world, leaving few members of the international community unmoved. Yet in Nigeria, brutal violence against similar innocents has not only continued for decades, but has dramatically increased in the past few months. Former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo had formally declared Nigeria a, quote, country of particular concern in December of 2020. But the Biden administration removed Nigeria from that important and useful designation. Ever since, the violence has increased while international news coverage has nearly vanished. Here to discuss this concerning situation is Leela Gilbert, Senior Fellow for International Religious Freedom here at FRC. Leela, good to see you today. Nice to see you, Joseph. Well, we are, you know, so much pain in the world, so many bad things happening that we can be giving our attention to, and appropriately, the world has been concerned about what's happening in Ukraine. But tell us, what is happening in Nigeria right now as well? The situation in Nigeria has been terrible for years, really decades. But most recently, um, although we've been very aware of the attacks by the group Boko Haram, which is now actually affiliated in some places with ISIS, there's been another group that has been active um, for quite a while, but since um, recent weeks have passed, it's become more active in the middle belt of Nigeria, which is south of the area in the north that we usually hear about. The middle belt has been attacked by Fulani radicals. And these are tribesmen of a Fulani tribe, which is a huge African tribe. They're not all part of this, but they are radicalized in Nigeria and other places. And they've been attacking in larger and larger numbers Christian groups, churches, villages. They've been going in and massacring groups of people. As many as 45 people had died last week. And so we've been trying to refocus a little bit on that ongoing tragedy, even as the 
situation in Ukraine unfolds every day. Leela, we think we have some sense of what is motivating Vladimir Putin. He makes statements. At least there's a lot of speculation about that. What is what is motivating the attacks in Nigeria by the Fulani herdsmen? Well, the same thing that motivates radical Islamist groups worldwide, which is uh, killing Christians and those who oppose their radical agenda. We've seen that with ISIS in Iraq. We've seen it all over. But in this case, there's another element, and that is the government of Nigeria itself is operated almost entirely by Fulani tribesmen. Uh, We have the reason to think that there is influence where they're not over, they're not keeping track of what's going on or speaking out against it and maybe even assisting a little bit in this. So it's radical Islam, but it's also a tribal ethnic issue and it's also governmentally at least overlooked. So this is a situation where those who should be in a position of stopping it are either complicit or in agreement at least they're turning a blind eye. And it looks like worse than that. But, uh, you know, we're sitting here, it's, we're not in a position to judge it. But it is interesting that the, um, that the document that Mike Pompeo, former Secretary of State, the designation he made that this was a country of particular concern, uh, didn't even last a year before the present administration uh, uh, they dis- re- they undesignated it, and we don't know why. And it may have been a conversation with the government there. It may have been some kind of a, a quiet agreement, and we really don't know. But what we do know is that there couldn't be a country of, of greater concern than Nigeria on the long on the long history of what's happened there. Leela, what is the significance of that change in designation from no longer designating them a country of particular concern? Well, it has to do with responses we can make. As I understand it, we can we can uh, sanction that country and even its leadership, specifically its leadership. In fact, you know the the de- declarations that can be made would be very helpful in this case. But um, it removes some of those opportunities, and it also unfocuses the world on the ongoing trouble there. Leela, we've seen how the world and the United States have come together to to create sanctions against Russia. Why are those same steps not being taken against those committing atrocities in Nigeria? I don't know. And I don't know of any people that really understand what happened except people at the top. What we wonder about is whether there are political games being played. Also, it's a very largely successful commercial country. It's the largest financial center in Africa. So there's money involved, there's politics involved, and there's compromise involved. Often the Fulani attacks are explained as ethnic, but not only as ethnic, but as being uh, based on climate change and a lack of resources. And Generally, people that are protesting climate change don't scream Alu Akbar when they kill people in their churches. We don't really believe this is the reason, but our political people sometimes would rather compromise and say, well, it's just a cultural problem and, and, and they're, they're hurting for resources and so we have to be understanding. That's the best I can do to explain it. Leela Gilbert, it is concerning, but we're glad to know so that we can pray. And we do hope that the world will come together to oppose these human rights abuses as well. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Coming up after the break, why can't Judge Jackson define what a woman is? And more fundamentally, why do people complicate simple things? That's our conversation coming up with David Clausen. Stay with us. Do you want to be able to stay up to date on conservative news? Are you looking for Christian resources to help you stay politically engaged? Then download Family Research Council's Stand Firm app. With all of our content available at your fingertips, you will conveniently be able to stay up to date throughout your busy day. The Stand Firm app will give you access to a variety of resources, such as our most recent episodes of Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, tweets, and other social media posts, 
and our latest blogs, updates, and publications. Additionally, you will have the opportunity to take action and make your voice heard by contacting your elected officials on the issues that most concern you. Visit the App Store on your smartphone or mobile device and search Stand Firm to download Family Research Council's official Stand Firm app. What is religious liberty and why should you care about it? Simply put, religious liberty is the freedom to choose your religious beliefs and to live according to those beliefs. Why should we care about this freedom? At Family Research Council, we care about religious freedom because we believe that it is an inherent human right that all governments have an obligation to protect. Tragically, not all governments do. Religious persecution is a tragic reality around the world that is not often acknowledged by the media, even though attacks on people of all faiths continue to increase globally. In Scripture, God calls Christians to pray and care for the persecuted church, the downtrodden, and those who cannot help themselves. Therefore, we must be advocates for those persecuted for their faith. To access Family Research Council's latest resources and to learn more about religious freedom and what you can do to help the persecuted, go to frc.org slash religious liberty. Attention university students. Are you looking for an internship that will help you grow as a Christian leader and allow you to positively influence the culture? Then Family Research Council's internship program is for you. FRC's life-changing 12 to 15 week internship program will prepare and equip you for the next step in your professional journey. You'll enjoy a speaker series focusing on careers and callings, lectures from prominent conservative leaders, and weekly biblical worldview training. All of these offerings were created to aid you in your personal and professional development. As an intern, you will have the opportunity to work side-by-side -side with our experts in policy, communications, event planning, and more. The real-world experience you gain will prepare you to pursue a career of influence and make a difference wherever God calls you. This paid internship offers fully funded housing in the heart of downtown D.C., giving you the chance to experience our nation's capital. Visit frc.org slash internships to apply. Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony. Tony will be back in the chair with you on Monday. But it's that time of the week again, the Worldview Friday segment. And today's conversation is inspired by two articles that my colleague David Clausen wrote, both related to something the left has been working to erase and define, and that is what it means to be a woman. The articles can be found at frcblog.com, and I encourage you to check those out. But we will go ahead and discuss them right now with the author, David Clausen, FRC's director of the Center for Biblical Worldview. David, good to see you. Happy Friday. Good to be with you, Joseph. Well, interesting week in Washington, D.C. We have brilliant uh, Yale-educated attorneys, right? She went to Yale or Harvard. Which one was it? I believe it was Harvard. Harvard. Okay, I'm sorry. Well, you know, all the, all the Ivy Law School... <laughs> They kind of get jumbled up. But Harvard Law School, who's struggling to define what a woman is. And I want to get into the implications, the significance of that. But first, before we drill into that, you've been watching the confirmation hearings, the questions, her responses, people's responses to her questions and responses. What have you learned from watching the confirmation this week? Yeah, watching the confirmation hearings this week, I think it's just really interesting. I hope a lot of Americans did it. It's really an example of... Uh, the way our, our government works, it's a good uh, a civics lesson. You know, the Constitution says that the Senate shall give advice and consent to the president's uh, picks to be on the Supreme Court, the highest court in our nation. And that's what took place, uh, Joseph, the last uh, four days in the Senate Judiciary Committee. You had Republican and uh, Democrat senators asking Judge Jackson Brown, or Judge Brown Jackson, uh, questions about her judicial philosophy. And I think it was just a really, it, it was interesting to hear her uh, answer some questions straightforwardly, kind of dodge on some questions about what her actual judicial philosophy is, kind of get a little defensive uh, when she was asked by Senator Hawley or Senator Cruz about uh, decisions she made when she was sentencing those who were caught with child pornography. Uh, so I think it was very interesting. I think you see a real worldview, worldview divide, uh, even just in the questions uh, senators were asking based on what political party they were a part of. 
Yeah, you definitely see worldview divides, and we're going to get into that. You also see partisan divides. One other issue I kind of wanted to bring up, because I think it's, it's, uh, it's important as we think about just kind of the process that we're involved with. Uh, Senator Ben Sass, he had some comments suggesting that both the Supreme Court and the Senate, kind of the, the influence that cameras have on the process, and basically saying that the presence of cameras makes people perform for the cameras. And he implied that, you know, it discouraged people from apologizing or being gracious because they thought that might be a political liability. What's your thought on the idea that all of these cameras end up having the people involved in the process performing for the public rather than trying to just be decent and perform a public service? I agree with Senator Sass. I think if you, you know, go back and look at the confirmation hearings uh, for the uh, picks that President Trump made, Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett, it was clear that you had uh, senators on the Democratic aisle, uh, Senator Booker, Senator Harris, uh, who at the time were running for president during the Kavanaugh hearings. And I think it was clear they were looking for that kind of gotcha moment. And I think even this week, you know, there are senators on the Republican side of the aisle who probably have presidential uh, aspirations. And I think at some points they probably as well were looking for that soundbite, to look for that viral moment. And, and so I think what Senator Sass was saying, you know, some people don't know this, Joseph, but the Supreme Court, when they have oral arguments, they do not allow cameras. Uh, you can hear the audio uh, recordings after the fact, uh, but they don't allow cameras. And so I think it's good uh, that we can hear what our lawmakers and the people that make decisions that affect us. It's good to hear what they're saying, how they're interacting with one another. But I do think uh, we need to find a balance uh, between the, kind of the gamesmanship and the showmanship uh, versus the actual governing of the people. And it does bring up some worldview questions about why it is that we do what we do. Do we behave, different, do we behave differently when people are watching than we would when people aren't watching, right? That's and that's the, the, the old, it's not a cliche, it's real wisdom, I think, that integrity, your integrity is defined on by what you do when no one is watching. And that has implications for just kind of our private lives. But it's interesting. And I think the reality is that when the cameras are on, when we know we have an audience, there's a real temptation to behave differently. And the question that I think we're going to basically leave unanswered here, but deserves some time is, why is that? And is that a good thing or not? What's that say about our system that we generally seem to agree that the people that we've elected to office are behaving differently publicly than they would privately? But I want to drill down into some of these questions. We talked about kind of the political theater that is involved, and I think that's real. And one of the questions, and was it a gotcha question or was it a legitimate question? It's gotten a lot of attention. Let's go ahead and play this uh, with, just, with Senator Blackburn's conversation with Justice Jackson. Can you provide a definition for the word woman? Can I provide a definition? Mm -hmm. No. Yeah. I can't. You can't? Not in okay. this context. So I'm not a biologist. David Clawson, what's your reaction to that? Fair question or not? I think it's a very fair question. I don't think that's a gotcha question. I think that it is that exchange right there. I hope every American sees it. It's a very revealing question that it has to be asked. But, Joseph, I think it's an even more revealing non-answer. Uh, the fact that Judge Jackson uh you know, did not want to answer that question. People should go back and watch, you know, these confirmation hearings. It's clear. Uh, no one should doubt the fact that Judge uh, Jackson uh, is brilliant. Uh, she answered many of these complicated legal questions with ease. Uh, but the truth is she's actually embarrassed, Joseph, uh, by the question that Senator Blackburn answered or the, uh, asked her uh, because uh, the Democrat Party, uh, the Democrat base, their worldview, they're, they're now, so, now so captive uh, by the far left of the party that their answer to that question is embarrassing. And I think it's the reason, Joseph, I think it's a fair question to ask is because Judge Jackson was sitting in that chair in the confirmation hearings this week in large part because of a campaign promise that then candidate Joe Biden made. Uh, Joe Biden promised to appoint a black woman uh, to the Supreme Court. And what's fascinating, Joseph, is that prior to that exchange with Senator Blackburn, uh, Judge Jackson had actually used the woman, the word woman 14 times uh, in answers to other questions uh, that she was receiving. So Judge Jackson knows the answer to that question. She's just unwilling to answer it uh, because of 
uh, the, really where the Democrat Party uh, is now when it comes to these contested questions of gender identity. And let's drill down on that a little bit. Why would a really intelligent person who, as you say, has used the term 14 times previously in that conversation, so she, clearly she has an idea of what this word means because she uses it often, as we all do. Why would she be uh, hesitant, reluctant, unwilling to define that term that she had been using so frequently? I think the reason, and obviously the context of this, Joseph, is what just happened a week prior to these confirmation hearings, which is when Leah Thomas, a biological male, uh, won an NCAA championship in the women's division. Uh, this is an issue that is all over the place. There was biological men in the Olympics that, that happened in Tokyo a couple of um, months prior. Uh, this is an issue that's taking our, our culture, our society by storm, uh, this idea, this, this transgender moral revolution. And I think the reason Judge Jackson dodged on this is because increasingly, uh, they're the, again, the uh, Democratic Party, their base, their politicians, their, their donors ha have really bought in whole, uh, you know, hook, line and sinker to the transgender worldview that posits a difference between biological sex and gender identity. Uh, essentially, the definition that a lot of Democrats and people on the left progressives are giving is that when it comes to gender, it, it's really up to the individual. Uh, now, as Christians, we have a very different answer. I'm sure we can get into kind of the Christian worldview response to this. But it's just clear uh, in that moment, it was very revealing uh, that Judge Jackson's really embarrassed as far as the answer that folks in the party that nominated her to this seat would give to this question. And let's talk for a moment about why this matters for a judge. Because, of course, the, the worldview that makes that a difficult question to answer, is it, it assumes that the way you feel determines what is true. And if she has accepted that premise, that the way you feel determines what is true, what does that mean for a judge? Because a judge's job is to interpret the law and to say, here's what the law says, here's how it applies to these facts. But what if you have a judge who believes the way you feel determines what is true? That's very dangerous territory because then suddenly the words don't actually have meaning. You have to yep. like the outcome for that to be the correct outcome. And it's a very dangerous territory. The difference between the rule of law and the rule of men is under the rule of law, we don't consider the outcome necessarily. We don't consider who is involved in the dispute. We just apply the law to the facts. But if you have somebody on the bench who wants to feel good about the outcome of this, who really is looking at the parties involved and they don't want to do something, they believe the way they feel about it determines what is true, the probability of them applying the law neutrally to the facts uh, becomes really questionable. But David, there was another exchange that gets to a more fundamental question in this. This had to do with, uh, well, this is a question that Senator Kennedy asked Judge Jackson. It's relevant. It's clip three. Let's play that, and then I want to get a reaction from you. It's clip three. Life begin, in your opinion, Senator. Um, I don't know, <laughs> ma'am. I don't know, David Clawson. There's another moment where she struggles. So we've got what is a woman? Super confusing. When does life begin? Super confusing uh, to her in these moments. Why is it? Uh, what is it about human nature that wants to make simple things complex? Yeah, that's a great question, Joseph. And again, what a revealing moment in, in this, these you know confirmation hearings. Let me just say again, Judge Jackson, we're not doubting her in intelligence. She's a, a brilliant, accomplished judge uh, who's done a lot in her life. She has a very compelling life story. Uh, but the fact that she is hedging and dodging on these basic questions, this is, I think, why, Joseph, we, we, having these worldview conversations is so important, important because this is underscoring the massive worldview divide uh, between uh, Americans th these days, those that come at these questions from a biblical worldview that believe in absolute truth, uh, that believe in objective truth, uh, that have an epistemology that says that we can actually know things and we can uh, say things are true, we can say things are right, we can say things are wrong, uh, versus a worldview that rejects 
um, uh, really a postmodern worldview uh, that rejects the idea that we can actually know things, a a postmodern worldview that says actually language is a tool of oppression that we use to exploit people. And so just on that question, Joseph, when does life begin? Biologist, embryologist, scientist, life begins at conception. This is not a disputed fact. But the problem is this has now become a political issue uh, that one side of the aisle has now become completely beholden to the abortion lobby uh, that Judge Jackson knows she can't answer that question and still be in the good graces of the people who appointed her to this opening on the Supreme Court. And that's a commentary on our times, though. David, I think there's, there's something else going on here as well, because I think the human tendency to make simple things complex is a function of the fact that we don't like the obvious, simple answer to the question. In these cases, what is a woman? Well, that's complicated because it's challenging. When does life begin? Well, that's complicated because it's challenging. Should I remain faithful to my spouse? Well, I know what the answer is, but right now I don't feel like it. So I'm going to come up with some rationale about why this is a complicated question when it's really not a complicated question. We saw this happen uh, in Genesis with God and Cain. Hey, Cain, where's your brother Abel? Well, I don't know. That's complicated. Am I my brother's keeper? Is it even my job to answer that question, right? Simple answers. And and the reason humans want to make these things complicated is because we don't like the answer and underneath this. And I think uh, there's been a lot of like laughing, maybe even mocking of Judge Jackson this week that I'd like to rein in a little bit and try to help us all understand the the same boat that we're in with her is that when God says something that's pretty clear, there's a simple answer, but we don't like it. The tendency in all of us is to make it complicated because we don't really want to obey, do we? No, we don't, Joseph. And I think that's why as Christians, one of the things that we talk about on this show quite often is that as Christians, we do, we actually believe we're under authority. We believe there's an outside authority. We're not our own authorities. We're not our own little demigod. We believe that God is the outside authority. We believe his word sets the stage. So even a question like, what is a woman? You know, let's start with, you know, an adult female. But as Christians, we can go even further and say that a woman is a, uh, someone who's made in God's image, who has uh, XX chromosomes. Those chromosomes go all the way down uh, to the level of the cells. A, a woman is someone uh, created with uh, beauty and femininity who complements the masculinity of men who has the capacity to be a mother. Of course, not all women are going to be mothers, but they have that nurturing uh, ability, uh, that caring ability that is just woven into who they are. And I think it's just remarkable, Joseph, that when what the left is doing is we're rendering womanhood as this social construct that's demeaning and it's inviting cultural anarchy. And we just need to realize these basic questions, God has given the answer to those to us in his word. These are embedded in the order of creation. And to continue to spurn that, it really shows that this is, this is Romans 1 uh, kind of on play before our eyes when we reject the obvious of uh, what God has told us. That's exactly right. And, and let's remember, there, this, there are practical implications to this, because this isn't just, we've heard a lot about Leah Thomas and women swimming, but Practically speaking, housing situations, scholarship situations, enrollment in women's colleges, grants for women-owned business programs, if the federal government embraces this postmodern world, this truth is however you feel, the implications of this are tremendous. So we, we laugh about it. It's important. Um, but it's not funny um, because these have tremendous implications, not only for our public policy, but ultimately our understanding of truth. David Clausen, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you, Joseph. And thank you, friends, for being with us today as well. It's a blessing as always. We pray that God blesses your weekend. We'll see you on Monday. Until then, fear God and nothing else. We'll see you next time. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.